Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Welcome to now, the ninth season here's Anna of Heart to Heart with Anna. Our theme this season is Advancements in Congenital Heart Disease, and we have a great show for you today. Today's show is Advancements in Electrophysiology, and our guest is Dr. Wilson Lamb. Russell Lamb is a board-certified cardiologist who specializes in adult congenital cardiology and rhythm disorders. A native Houstonian, he graduated from Rice University and obtained his entire medical training at Baylor College of Medicine, completing residency in combined internal medicine and pediatrics, and fellowships in adult cardiovascular diseases, pediatric cardiology, and clinical cardiology electrophysiology. Although he manages various cardiac issues, his primary focus is caring for adult patients with congenital heart disease who also have rhythm disorders such as palpitations, passing out, or sudden death. He is experienced in antiarrhythmic medications, cardiac implantable electronic devices such as pacemakers and defibrillators, and catheter ablations for challenging rhythm issues. He has presented at local and national conferences. Other interests include medical education and use of technology in novel arenas. Dr. Lamb serves as Assistant Professor and Associate Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program at Baylor College of Medicine. First of all, I really should say welcome back since you were actually on Heart to Heart with Anna in Season 6 and in Season 8 also. So you're becoming quite the regular. Thank you. Well, in Season 6, I really enjoyed talking to you about congenital heart disease and seizing the day, knowing that congenital heart disease requires ownership and lifelong follow-up, that proactive stance can lead to great outcomes. Then in season eight, one of our ACHD champions, Lauren Bednars, and I got to share about those long-term complications after the Fontan surgery. Single ventricles can have some of the most complex cardiac surgeries with anticipated downstream problems, but good surveillance and management can help improve quality of life. Right. And I just loved everything that you and Lauren shared with our listeners. You have been such a fountain of fabulous information for us, and today's not going to be any different. So let's get right into it. I read an article that you published entitled Electrophysiology Updates in Adult Congenital Heart Disease, and I'd like that article to be the focus of our interview today. So let's start by talking about the difference in treating children with rhythm problems versus adults with congenital heart defects. I was surprised to see that some drugs act differently in a pediatric population versus an adult population. So can you tell us more about that? Certainly. So first off, it's very interesting that the heart seems to have different phases of when it tires out, when it starts to get weak, 
and other times when we'll start having more palpitations, such as growth phases or hormonal changes. Cells in the heart conduct electricity from one end of the heart to the other end of the heart through a network. Each of these cells has various channels or doorways that allow charged particles to go in and out of them. We like to classify these antiarrhythmia medicines based on what types of receptors or channels that they block. Some of them block sodium channels, others block potassium channels, some block the beta receptors, others are called calcium channel blockers. In reality, many of these medicines have a shotgun effect that blocks several. So we pick the medicines based on the variety of these properties, their side effects, and how often one has to take the medicines for it to be effective. One of the medicines in particular called flecainide is a sodium channel blocker. Traditionally, we use it in patients who have a structurally normal heart to reduce or stop those palpitations. However, if you happen to have scar sitting inside your heart, conduction slows down in those areas, and it can actually set up a revolving door circuit inside the heart. That can lead to more palpitations, which we call flutter. And if that stays going on for a while, that can weaken the heart, causing people to pass out or even pass away. So interestingly, a pediatric heart study out of Texas Children's Hospital showed that in younger hearts, even hearts that had scar or surgeries didn't tend to have more arrhythmias when flecainide was used. It looked like it was safe. Another study out of the Cleveland Clinic suggested that pediatric and younger adult patients who were on the transplant list for a new heart didn't seem to benefit from a defibrillator, suggesting that they didn't have as much arrhythmias that caused sudden death. They were usually passing away from pump failures instead of rhythm disturbances. Lastly, there are some newer medicines out there, some called dronetarone or dofetilide, which have very limited testing in the pediatric and adult congenital population. As a matter of fact, the largest series that looked at that dofetilide medicine hasn't even reached 100 patients just yet. So the jury's still out whether these medications will have a role. I have used them, though, and had some great success, but on a case-by-case -case basis. I just had Dina Barber on the show, and she did two programs with me this season, actually, because we were doing a 30-year perspective on congenital heart disease and what has changed over time. And that is something that she was talking about, that unfortunately, a lot of these drugs aren't tested on a pediatric population and aren't available for use with FDA approval. And that makes it so much more complicated for you doctors, doesn't it? Indeed. Yeah, sometimes we have to look at all the data and then make a decision after discussing with the patients saying, hey, we don't know all of the effects just yet in whether or not it'll help you, whether it'll harm you, but this is our best guess if we extrapolate from patients who have hearts that are different than yours and who have had a benefit. But these are the side effects and these are the things that you should look out for. Right. It seems with electrophysiology, it's still a relatively new field. Isn't that true? Yeah, it is definitely in its infancy. And I think for the congenital heart patient, we are extrapolating a lot of the invasive complex procedures from things that were performed in the 1980s. Well, I had never heard the term vitamin K antagonist until I read your article. So, of course, I had to look it up. And I was surprised to see that basically meant warfarin or coumadin. So this is a really scary drug, especially for young children who might fall and hurt themselves a lot. But for people who have artificial valves or certain other structural problems, it seems that coumadin is a necessary evil. 
Last season, however, I had a pharmacist on the show, and she talked about some new drugs such as Noax or Doax, the direct anticoagulant therapy or non-warfarin therapy. But I was talking to Dina Barber about that, and she made it sound like maybe it's not being used in a pediatric or in a congenital heart community as much as it is in people with acquired heart disease. So can you tell us about these drugs and if you're using them with your patients? Absolutely. I think that technology is catching up with us and newer medicines can have a role, particularly if they're more effective, if they're easier to take, perhaps less frequently administered, or if they're less costly. And when I say less costly, I'm not referring to the cost of the medication and the pill itself because newer medications are often more expensive than older medications. But there are some downstream costs such as lab draws, side effects, and other complications that need to be considered. So there are currently four novel oral anticoagulants or newer oral anticoagulants, sometimes called target-specific oral anticoagulants. And I'm using the whole variety of them depending on the patient who's in front of me. If someone's had a prior stroke, or if somebody's only good with taking a medication once a day, or if somebody has a higher risk of having a bleed in their GI tract, either blood in their stools or vomiting up blood, then I'm gonna pick a different agent based on those side effects. For patients with the Fontan circulation, there have been guidelines published in 2014 recommending against the use of these agents for fear of bleeding or lack of an antidote. We at Texas Children's have looked at one of the larger series in adult patients and are looking forward to presenting our data at a national conference later this year. Antidotes have actually been developed. One of them's already on the market and another one is really close for the three other agents. We also have the ability to suck the compound out of the bloodstream as up to 90% of the medication is actually bound to plasma in the blood. So a procedure called plasmapheresis or plasma exchange can actually pull the anticoagulant effect out of the bloodstream. In Europe, they actually released a set of guidelines expanding the use of these NOACs to several patients, those who have valvular heart disease because the original FDA approval was for non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Essentially, the only patients who can't use these medications now are those with mechanical valves, rheumatic heart disease, and a recent heart surgery. So I think many congenital patients would benefit from a more liberal use of NOACs. Coumadin can be tough to keep in the goal range. We call that the TTR, or time in the therapeutic range. It can be as low as 40% in the general public and 60 to 70% in some of the best trials where you have somebody calling up to make sure that patients are taking their medications. But NOACs have fewer drug-drug interactions and more predictable amount in the body, and that's probably why they show a benefit over Coumadin due to their reliable anticoagulation effect. Time will tell, and studies are needed to know whether or not they can be used safely with a mechanical valve, as the initial study with the first FDA-approved NOAC showed more bleeding and more valve clotting. Therefore, I think the other companies are a little hesitant to do larger studies just yet. That all sounds really promising. I'm really excited about that. Yes, I think new medications have the ability to improve quality of life. And hopefully, since we don't need monitoring or dietary adjustments, many patients who were taking Coumadin will get benefits for being on a NOAC. This is really important stuff that we're covering. 
Well, atrial fibrillation seems to be one of the most common problems that members of the CHD community have to deal with, and even members of the population at large who don't have a congenital heart defect also seem to have to deal with AFib. So can you tell us what's new regarding therapy for atrial fibrillation or AFib? Sure. I think monitoring is one of the key elements. The devices to monitor the heart are getting smaller and smaller. Some of them can be injected underneath the skin if we need to monitor the heart for as much as three years. The new types of devices, such as the Holter or the 30-day event monitor, are being replaced by patches that can be worn for a week and be worn through a shower at home. More is also coming around in terms of reducing strokes that can be related to atrial fibrillation. There's a little nubbin on the heart called the left atrial appendage where the vast majority of strokes come from this blind pouch. And some studies are looking at cinching off or plugging off that appendage so that we can reduce the risk of strokes. There's been a lot of promising data for that type of procedure. Others are trying to see if we can debulk the muscle in that area, and can that reduce the burden of atrial fibrillation? The next realm of ablation is using different forms of energy. We have ultrasound, we have heat energy, we have freezing energy, and now external beam radiation is being looked at as a means of affecting heart muscle tissue. It sounds very Star Trekian, like a tricorder, but radiation without catheters might be the next step in the future. We're looking at the autonomic nervous system. That's adrenaline and the 10th cranial nerve or the vagus nerve and their balance is like an arm wrestling match and imbalances can trigger arrhythmia as well. So figuring out what are the right cues can help to reduce palpitations as well. It seems like we're starting to actually understand what's triggering the AFib whereas before it seems like it was a big mystery. That's true. A lot of research since the late 90s has aimed at what causes atrial fibrillation and what sustains atrial fibrillation. Overall, we think we know more, but I'm sure we're just scratching the surface. There's probably scar and structure and much more research that needs to be done to figure this out. Wow, that's amazing. That's so much more than I even expected you to say. This is really, really promising. Excellent. I'm so excited. Well, thank you, Dr. Lamb, for sharing this information with us. We need to take a quick break, but don't leave yet, because coming up next, we're going to talk to Dr. Lamb about the defibrillator implantation controversy when we come back after this quick break. The most common theme that I hear is why. She always needed uh, a lot of attention. She had strokes. Even though it's a natural inclination to withdraw from the CHD community, I think being a part of it helped me be part of the solution. Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern. I'm Michael Lieben, and I'll be your host as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. 
Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today's show is Advancements in Electrophysiology, and our guest is Dr. Wilson Lamb. We just finished talking with Dr. Lamb about some of the drugs used in the congenital heart defect community for AFib and for some other kinds of arrhythmias. Dr. Lamb, I was surprised to read in the article you wrote, Electrophysiology Updates in Adult Congenital Heart Disease, that there is some controversy regarding the implantation of defibrillators. I've talked with a lot of mothers who have had a sense of relief when a defibrillator, ICD, or pacemaker was implanted in their children because they were less afraid of losing their children to sudden cardiac death. Can you tell us what doctors have learned about implanting these devices in patients and what new guidelines are being used when determining who should have one and who shouldn't? Sure, that is absolutely right, and the implantable cardiac defibrillator is an amazing medical advance that it essentially monitors the heart for a dangerous rhythm, ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, and prevents it from being sustained long enough to lead to sudden death. It'll recognize it within a few seconds, charge, shock, and put the heart back into a normal rhythm. The majority of devices that we implanted before were placed beneath the collarbone in a transvenous fashion. Some patients, especially the congenital heart patients, have had surgically implanted defibrillators where they had to open up part or all of the breastbone because having a wire sitting in the veins would lead to extra blood clots and sluggish flow. Today, the novel approach for placing defibrillators can be done beneath the skin, but still surrounding the bulk of the heart to monitor and deliver energy. We call that the subcutaneous ICD. Now, the best data that came out for implantable cardiac defibrillators came from the late 1990s and the early 2000s. But the patients that were enrolled in those studies, most of them had previous heart attacks and scar tissue that was sitting inside their hearts. Then the later studies showed that patients without blockages in their coronary arteries also could have some areas of scar that could be predictive of a weak heart muscle, and maybe that would progress to cause funny heart rhythms. But just last year, a few months ago, a large Danish trial, it was actually appropriately titled Danish, looked at defibrillators in a population of patients without heart attacks, without blockages, and wanted to see could we reduce their sudden death, but could we also reduce their overall mortality. Even though the sudden death rate was cut in half, patients still died at similar rates, so there must have been another reason, whether it was infection, cancer, heart failure, that led to the demise to equal out the populations. Patients younger than 60 years of age tended to do better, but the majority of our patients in their 20s, 30s, 40s, prior surgery, weren't studied. There's another feature in these defibrillators called anti-tachycardia pacing, where it will tickle the heart just a little bit faster than the ventricular tachycardia. The thought is that if you pace faster, maybe it might actually stop the rhythm from happening. Sometimes it actually speeds them up and causes the heart to need a shock to get back to a normal rhythm. But large studies in non-congenital heart patients showed increased mortality when we used either the early shock or the anti-tachycardia pacing, whereas smaller pediatric studies, including pediatric congenital heart disease and adult congenital heart patients, showed that the anti-tachycardia pacing was beneficial. So I'm not sure just yet whether or not is it because these heart rhythms would have stopped on their own or is it just that younger patients have a better reserve and so they have a better survival 
and we haven't seen the increased mortality. Some patients have undergone a procedure called the atrial switch procedure for transposition of the great arteries. That's the mustard or the senning type of surgeries. Patients who have had an aborted cardiac arrest seem to benefit from a defibrillator in that population. But those who hadn't had a prior event, well, putting in that device didn't seem to have a significant benefit. So we do have to think about the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives to implanting a defibrillator. In general, the risk of sudden death remains low in younger patients, even in the congenital heart disease population, unless there has been a prior cardiac arrest and resuscitation. Some features like low ejection fraction, that's the heart squeeze, or short runs of palpitations, that non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, might be small risk factors. We can pick those up on Holter's or pacemaker interrogation. However, there is a risk of infection at the time of implant. That's about 1%. And every time that we switch out a generator, there's about a 2 to 3% risk of infection. We do have to replace those generators roughly every 5 to 12 years, maybe an average of 8 to 10 years. And major infections might require us to actually go in and extract or remove the entire system. That can be a hefty procedure to undergo. Yeah, it sounds kind of scary. It can be, and those should always be performed at a center of excellence that knows the anatomy and is experienced with that procedure. Mm -hmm. Another type of complication might be an inappropriate discharge. That means mm -hmm. the device shocks, even though the rhythm is normal, or perhaps it's external interference or an abnormal safe rhythm that doesn't require a shock at that time. It's not the dangerous ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. Some of the old studies said that happens 6 to 7% per year, but newer computer algorithms have probably reduced that to about 2% per year, but it's still not 0%. Most of our devices still have leads, and mm -hmm. over time, those leads can wear and tear. So they fail, roughly 10 to 20% of them fail over a decade or more just because those leads are moving inside the heart. Lastly, there is always a cost of a device and technology, and I know it's not cheap, and that helps to support research and development of newer life-saving technology with those devices. But with the escalating cost of healthcare, we always have to be cost-conscious, thinking, are we performing the right procedure that can save lives to the degree that we're not adding the risk of these types of complications? Right. In summary, if somebody has an aborted sudden death, most of us know that there's high likelihood that the patient will have great benefit with a defibrillator place. But the risk is they may not survive that first event. Right. Placing a defibrillator before the first event can be considered, but we have to make sure that the patients and families know what they're getting into. There's going to be heightened surveillance. There's going to be more cost and testing. There's going to be replacements down the road roughly every decade. That could be seven to eight of these in a lifetime. Inappropriate shocks could come with it bruising, bleeding, and infection. So as long as everybody is in agreement, we can think about placing the defibrillators, but it comes with the potential risks as well. But don't you think with the advancements in technology that it's unlikely that those leads will be placed seven times? Because don't you think it's possible that eventually we'll have these defibrillators that are leadless? Uh, leadless can absolutely be done for pacemakers. We are putting them in through the leg and into the heart, and right now we can only place those pacemakers, batteries, 
into the lower chamber, into the ventricles. Soon, we hope that we can start putting them into the upper chambers as well so they could talk to each other and pace the upper chamber and the lower chamber in synchrony. Mm -hmm. And if we can get those to talk with one of those subcutaneous defibrillators as well, then we'd have all of it together and we wouldn't have the wear and tear. So I do think that there is some advantage to leadless technology. Some researchers are actually developing solar-powered batteries as well so that pacemakers with leads could actually stay charged just with solar power. Wow. But currently that's just in animal models. There's a lot of technology around there and different people are trying to approach those complications and those side effects. And I think if we address each of them, hopefully we can come down with better solutions down the road. Oh, I just think it's amazing. And it's so funny because you said in the first segment that some of it seems like Star Trek. It does. It seems like science fiction. And yet we're witnessing this. It's science fact now. I believe it. You know, a lot of the healthcare facilities are working together with educational institutions such as engineers to create better devices. And working collaboratively with industry, I think we can get better products out to our patients so that we can make sure that we're getting the best quality of life and hopefully without an increased cost. I just love it. This is great. Well, I can't believe it, but we're already done with the second segment. We have to take a quick break, but don't leave yet, listeners, because when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Lamb about what three things people can do to reduce the likelihood of developing certain rhythm problems, or better yet, even reverse some adverse symptoms that might require seeing an electrophysiologist. We'll be right back. When I saw so many of these CHG groups growing, I found family just ready to join me. Anyone who is a member of the adult congenital heart defect community can be a guest on our show. We have a great year planned and we look forward to sharing other interesting topics. Heart to Heart with Nicole and David, serving the ACHD community, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today's show is Advancements in Electrophysiology, and our guest is Dr. Wilson Lamb. We just finished talking with Dr. Lamb about the controversy surrounding the implantation of defibrillators and some new guidelines for implantation of devices in the CHD population. In this third segment, we're going to address some things that people can do to reduce the likelihood of them needing to see an electrophysiologist. So the article that you wrote, Electrophysiology Updates in Adult Congenital Heart Disease, surprised me yet again when I saw the importance you placed on preventative care for those in the CHD community. So let's take the three things that people can do one at a time. One of the things mentioned that people can do as a preventative measure regards the influenza vaccine. Why is it so important for people in the CHD community to have their flu vaccine? Thank you, Anna. I love talking about public health measures. The vast majority of the medical community knows that vaccines save lives. They are cheap and they're effective. They are cost effective. So a study came out of Taiwan last year showing about an 18% reduction in atrial fibrillation when patients had received the flu vaccine. It looked back in time, so it wasn't a trial moving forward, but it looks promising. 
The three major reasons to get a flu shot, I tell all of my patients, number one is that there's something called herd immunity. If we can get 80 to 85% or more of the population vaccinated, then those who can't protect themselves, those who have a weak immune system can actually be protected because the likelihood of the virus hopping amongst all of us is reduced if more than 80 to 90% of us are protected and prevent the migration of those viruses. The second reason, which is important to congenital heart disease, is that a lot of congenital heart disease involves the right ventricle or the pump that goes to the lungs. Well, guess what? When the lungs catch an infection, the blood pressure in the lungs goes up. That makes the right ventricle work even harder. So for congenital heart patients with right ventricular issues, I definitely recommend the flu vaccine. Lastly, the third reason to get a flu shot probably the results of that study showing an 18% reduction in atrial fibrillation, it's probably due to decreased inflammation inside heart tissue. We found that people who get infections tend to get inflammation all throughout their body. And if there's increased inflammation, there's going to be increased scar formation in the heart. We worry that increased scar will eventually lead to atrial fibrillation. So if you can reduce inflammation and reduce scar in the body, hopefully we can reduce the palpitations that come with them. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's one of the things with bacterial endocarditis. We worry about that because that's also an inflammation around the heart. So it just makes sense that if you have the flu, you're going to have inflammation throughout your body and that that can cause problems. That's exactly right. Naturally, one thing people can do is to lose weight. Oh my goodness, this is such a problem for us in the United States. It seems that obesity is such a problem, but I didn't know that it could cause arrhythmias. Can you tell us about the importance of weight loss as a preventative measure for those in the CHD community? Absolutely, Anna. The tried and true wellness therapies cannot be overlooked. We've known for several years now that weight reduction was associated with less atrial fibrillation, and we didn't know why. It probably is related to fat in various parts of our body, and when that fat deposits around the heart, that can actually release chemicals causing more inflammation and palpitations as well. The highest concentration is actually around the back wall of the heart close to what we call the pulmonary veins. The pulmonary veins tend to be the sources of a lot of atrial fibrillation. So reduction in fat and inflammation around these anatomic structures probably is related to the reduction in atrial fibrillation as well. Now, fat, when it deposits around the neck area and the tongue, can actually lead to something called sleep apnea, and that can also be associated with atrial fibrillation. Yeah, I understand that sleep apnea can cause all kinds of problems. And in fact, my husband, I think he's had sleep apnea ever since he was a teenager. But certainly when I married him in his 20s, I noticed that he had sleep apnea. And when he did his sleep study, they became so alarmed, they didn't let him finish the study without putting a machine on him because they told him that you could actually have a heart attack because of the sleep apnea. So can you tell us about the dangers of sleep apnea? Certainly, sleep apnea, especially severe sleep apnea, such as pausing, breathing more than uh, 30 times an hour, causing lower levels of oxygen, is associated with 
worse cardiovascular outcomes. They say that roughly one quarter of the population, if not more, has sleep apnea, and there are certain features such as obesity or diabetes that can be associated with it as well. Sleep apnea can cause high blood pressure in the lungs. It can cause high blood pressure in the body as well. It's definitely associated with arrhythmias. It can cause the heart rate to get really slow, probably from an imbalance of the autonomic system that we talked about earlier. It can also be related to atrial fibrillation. Somewhere between 25 and 40% of patients with atrial fibrillation have sleep apnea and vice versa. That 25 to 40% of patients with sleep apnea have atrial fibrillation. Isn't that amazing? Well, to me, this just points out how interrelated everything is in the body. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and good treatment has shown reduction in atrial fibrillation as well. So I do think whether it's the condition itself or whether there's something downstream that's getting affected, we really want to control any types of things that worsen the body's function. Is sleep apnea genetic? That's a great question. You know, I would venture to guess that there's probably a little bit of nature and a little bit of nurture because it isn't all obesity. It's not all large tonsils. There's probably some degree of patients that will respond differently to sleep apnea as well. So some people get the high blood pressure in their lungs, whereas others get high blood pressure, period. I think that in general, probably more research needs to be out there uh, to figure it out. So if anybody is snoring and having daytime sleepiness, we probably ought to check them for sleep apnea just to make sure that their heart health is going to be okay too. Would you also be more concerned with treating somebody or having somebody tested if one or both of their parents had sleep apnea? I think it's very reasonable, but I think I would probably want to look for symptoms first, mm -hmm. either daytime sleepiness or fatigue or the snoring perhaps if that's detected. Many smartphone apps can actually watch and listen for that in people's sleep. But I think anyone who has a higher risk of rhythm issues and either the sleepiness or the snoring probably ought to have a study to go looking for sleep apnea. Okay, that's really good advice. Well, the last question I have for you, Dr. Lamb, is what advancement in electrophysiology can we anticipate in the future? What do you think might be the next big therapy or treatment that we should have on our radar? Wow, the sky is the limit, I think, with technology coming out. And I, we alluded to some of these earlier, but I'm hoping that affecting the autonomic system and getting balance is probably number one. Number two would probably be the external ablation. If we can actually start affecting heart muscle tissue from outside without having to poke inside the body and have direct precision on tissue, I'm hoping we can start doing better jobs of ablation without as much risk. And lastly, I think leadless technology is the future for devices. I think without the wear and tear of moving parts and with the ability to replace them through percutaneous means by going up the groin, putting in a battery, taking it out and replacing a new one. I think those are going to be better ways to avoid the wear and tear on our devices. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So you're saying that you think in the future we may even be able to replace batteries with the catheterization instead of having to do it in a surgical theater? That's, that's right. Most of these 
devices that are the leadless devices are just as small as a tiny little finger, or they could fit in the palm of your hand. So they can be done in a catheter-based procedure, and essentially that battery itself is the pacemaker, which one of the pacemakers can be screwed and unscrewed, the other one is deployed using tines, and that one stays placed in the heart more permanently after it's deployed. Wow, that's just amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of this information with us today, Dr. Lamb. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to be on the show once again. Well, I'm sure you'll be a repeat guest. You always have so much to share with us. And this is a field that it seems to me is changing at lightning speed. Absolutely. I think the important thing is keeping up with the information, making sure that patients are plugged in with doctors who are keeping up, going to conferences, learning about the technology, because if you spend one, three, five years outside of it, we would be lost. Right, right. Things are just advancing too quickly. So thank you for informing my listeners and informing me about the advancements of electrophysiology. That does conclude today's episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Please come back next week on Tuesday at noon Eastern time. Until then, check out our website, hearttoheartwithanna.com. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.